You are listening to Agent Court Church's audio podcast. For more information on Agent Court Church, including service times, how to connect, and campus locations, please visit our website at onechurch.to. Good morning and happy Father's Day. Listen, if you follow us on social media, you know last week we had our cross the line, our cross the line race to raise money for drilling wells in Bangladesh in the Rohingya refugee camp, and it was an excellent day. We had over 88 people participate, and between them and many more volunteering, and we were able to raise enough money to drill two wells in the Rohingya refugee camp last weekend. So thank you. Thank you, friends. You know, I, in fact, uh, we had these great t-shirts that everyone got that participated in it, and the first person that can run to me gets this free t-shirt. There you go. Now, the rest of you can get one, too, at the Resource Center for $10. And all the proceeds go to help drill more wells in Bangladesh. You might want to do that on your way out. Listen, it was a great event. I I need you to know that I entered this event uh, primarily to do some good in this world, to drill some wells and do some good in this world. But I also entered it because there has been somebody who has won it the last, like, three to four years in a row. He's always coming first. He's one of our youth, young adults, uh, Ethan Apadurai. So I entered it not just to do good, I entered it to crush the competition. Because there was friendly competition last weekend. And I want you to see, because we have video footage and evidence that, uh, that I, I was in first. I'm with the hat. First one out of the gate. The kid next to me is the kid that normally wins. But you can notice clearly I am ahead. I'm ahead. In fact, I think I'm in first place right here. I am in first place right at that moment. Unfortunately, that's all the footage we have from the race, and it was just the beginning. As I started so well, it, it didn't quite end the way I wanted it to end. He won again. But I want you to know that uh, it was because my sneakers, I blame my sneakers, they just, they were not in tune and they, they were a little slow. They were running a little slow that day, so I kind of fell behind. It was the sneakers' fault and actually, I mean, look at the pictures of the actual winners. These are the three top men, the three top women in that race and it's clear from that picture that they're all on performance-enhancing drugs and I wasn't. I was running clean. That's what, that was the difference. I, I blame it on that. Do you ever play the blame game? Will you pass the blame around? I mean, everyone does that. Everyone has done that. You know, for some of us, we love to pass the blame to God. For others, we pass it on to people. Some of us blame our circumstances for some of the decisions and choices we've made in life. We play the blame game. Everyone does. Everyone has. It's the oldest game in human history, and it's the only game where nobody actually wins. If you have your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at how the blame game came about and what's the result of the blame game. Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to read some verses to you. Are you ready to go? Here we go. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really? I mean, did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat from the tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the response is the very first recorded incidence of the blame game being played. The man said, the woman, you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is it, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. Why do we play the blame game? Why do we shift the blame? Why do we have such trouble taking responsibilities for our own choices and actions? Friends, I want to lead you to a moment where we can end the blame game, where we can do a, a reset uh, right here this morning. Uh, now, I'd like you to say something after me, if you would. Uh, if you own it, can you say that? If you own it, you can shift it. If you own it, you can shift it. Now, let's look at this chapter in chapter 3, because in the beginning, you see the anatomy of how the blame game actually came to be. The fall of humanity came to be, and it all started with a sneer. It all started with a sneer. Look at this in, in, in Genesis chapter 3. It says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really Say you must not eat from the tree, any tree in the garden. That Hebrew word translated for really can be translated to being indeed. It's, it's, it's not, he's not denying that God said that in the statement. He's mocking God. He's mocking God. This is how the blame game gets its start. The blame game begins with an attitude. It actually starts with an attitude. The fall of the human race doesn't start with an action. We think it's the action of taking of the fruit of the tree. It doesn't start with an action. It doesn't even start with a thought. We think the thought that got lodged in their head by the serpent led to the action, which it did. It actually starts with an attitude. An attitude. The enemy or Satan or the serpent, he's trying to say what God says is ridiculous. It's laughable. The serpent is mocking God. Did God really? Did he really say that? He's trying to change their attitudes towards God and what he said. He's trying to get Adam and Eve to laugh at what God said. Friends, the blame game starts 
with an attitude in our heart. Someone once said this, and it's true. Attitude is everything. Attitude is everything, isn't it? You ever go into a store, you got someone serving you, and you clearly are interrupting? You know, uh, what do you want? It's like, I want to turn around and walk out of this store right now. Or, you know, when someone's giving you attitude, you know, do you want to be around them? Attitude sets a tone. It sets an atmosphere. It's, it's the place where we begin to shift our, the way we think or do things. And in, in our world today, listen, most people, uh, let, let me say this, after 25 years of pastoring, over 25 years of pastoring, I can tell you most people don't lose their faith because someone had a, a fantastic argument against the existence of God. Most people lose their faith over attitude. See, in our world and culture, the tone and atmosphere about being a person of faith has become more difficult. Do you really believe that? Does she she really believe that? And over time, we get nervous. We don't want to be ridiculed for being a follower of Jesus. And so we find ourselves moving a little bit further away from being connected as a person of faith. And what happens when the attitude begins to shift in us, we become a little less passionate. A little bit less passionate about God. A little bit less passionate about the things of God. Our attitude shifts. And when our attitude shifts, our passion leaks. You know what it's like? when you meet someone with a bad attitude and their passion is not there. Now, I mean, you could be volunteering in a church and if you don't have a great attitude, it shows. It shows. Do people a favor, take a break. Because why? Because there's no passion for what they're doing. It's so different. When you meet someone who's passionate about what they do, they're excited about what they do, they're all in. I was talking to someone in this church, uh, one of the guys on staff earlier this week, and it was a conversation unrelated But he made a statement, and I've been thinking about it all week. He said this, when did it become so uncool to be passionate? When did it become so not cool to be passionate, to be all in? And I got thinking about how I've seen that creep into my life, even the lives of some people I know. A little less passionate. A little bit less leaning in. They're in moments of great worship and, and somehow they're not connecting because their attitude has shifted over time. No longer do they see things the same way. The tone of their relationship with God. Oh, they may be still in with God, but the tone has changed. Here's a great author, a guy named Oswald Chambers. He said this, every time we pray, our horizon is altered. Our attitude to things is altered. Not sometimes, but every time. And the amazing thing is that we don't pray anymore. Every time we pray, our horizon is altered and our attitude to things is altered. Friends, there is a culture shift happening. I don't need to tell you that. And attitudinally guard yourselves because what you'll find over time is your passion for God will leak as people set a different atmosphere or tone. So when someone says to you, do you really believe that? That's not an argument against or for God. That's an assertion. That's an attitude, tone, atmosphering, setting statement. That's when you should say, yeah, I do. Like, do you have another, is there a reason why I should not believe that? Here's what I found over the years. Most people don't have arguments against God. They have attitudes against God. 
Most people don't have arguments against even the commands of God because, man, they make so much sense. They have arguments against the attitude or they have attitudes against the commands of God. If you're a follower of Jesus, let me say this. Guard your attitude. Where's your attitude at? Because if you don't check that attitude, the blame game, you're primed for it. You're primed to end in the trap of the blame game. So in the blame game, though, you see in Genesis chapter 3, it doesn't just start with attitude. It moves on. The blame game proceeds with a lie. After the attitude is allowed to be toxified a little bit, attitudes like the soil, the soil of Adam and Eve's life spiritually, then the enemy is able to insert a lie into their mind. And that's what's going to bear fruit on actions that they take. You can see it in verse 4. God says, hey, don't eat of this tree. And in verse 4, it says this. You'll not, the, the, the serpent lies to Eve. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. God said she would. He lies. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is he saying here? He's saying, listen, if you obey God, he's going to cheat you in life. If you do things his way, he's going to take joy from you in life. He's trying to lodge into the human psyche right at that moment a lie, right in the attitude that's ripe for a lie to be launched in. If you obey God, you're going to miss out. You're going to miss out on so much in life. If you're going to obey God, you won't be happy. If you're going to obey the will of God, it'll cut off all the other options that will make you enjoy this life. If you obey God, it'll keep you from being all you want to be. Now, what's interesting, Satan, it says this about the serpent. He's crafty. And you can see it in the way he plays Adam and Eve. He's brilliant at this, brilliant at this. He starts with just an attitudinal shift. He doesn't go after much. He just does an attitudinal shift. Let's laugh about something that God said. Let, let's make light of something God said. And then he plants the seed in. And notice how he does it. He doesn't go after the existence of God. He doesn't try to prove to Adam and Eve that God doesn't exist. I mean, that's not the goal in life. Over 90% of people on the planet believe there is a God. That's not unique, and the world's still a mess. That's not what he goes after. Also notice, he doesn't go after the holiness of God or the law of God. He doesn't say to them, God never said that. He doesn't say that. Or he doesn't say, God doesn't care how you live. He doesn't say that. He doesn't go after the existence of God, the law of God, or, or, or any of those commands of God. He doesn't go after those things. What he goes after is the goodness of God. He calls into question whether God is good. Can you trust God? Is God good? Is he loving? Is he trustworthy? Or do you have to take your life into your own hands and make things happen? That's what he's calling into question. He wants you to question whether or not you can trust God with your lives. Does his commands actually lead to life or does it stifle life? And the lie is in your heart and it's in my heart. It was lodged in us at the moment of creation. In that moment when the first family chose a different path. Do you know what that lie is doing in your life? I know what it's doing in my life. That lie is how we can say, you know, I know the Bible says this, but. 
You can put anything in there. I know the Bible says I shouldn't spend all my money on myself, but I should care for others. But I know the Bible says I shouldn't hold a grudge or I should forgive, but I know the Bible says I shouldn't sleep with someone I'm not married to, but and we have all of these things that God says in his word, and yet we pull back with reservation because, because we don't trust him. At the heart of this is we don't really believe we can trust that God cares, that God loves, that God has the best for us. If you obey, you won't be happy. That's the lie of Satan. And he's trying to destroy our trust in God. It's beneath everything. A psychologist named Eric Erickson wrote a book called Childhood and Society. It's a brilliant book. Not that I've read it. I just saw the quote. He says this, If a child in the very earliest years learns not to trust the dominant personality of the parents because they've either been abused or because they've been neglected or abandoned, then they will have a fundamental inability to attach or trust ever again. Now, friends, I'm not a psychologist. I have no idea whether Eric Erickson is right about this childhood pathology. I have no idea. But I do know this. That's what happened in Genesis. That's exactly what happened. When we were in our infancy as a human race, we believed the servant. We believed the serpent that you cannot, you cannot trust God. You cannot trust his love. Friends, that's why so many of us are working ourselves to death to prove to people around us and prove to ourselves that we're valuable, that we mean something. That's why some people exploit people or push them down because they have bought into the lie. They don't trust God. They don't trust the love of God. They don't trust anybody, and they've been ruined by that, law, that lie. The attitude is the soil that provides a place for the lie to get lodged. And then the blame game doesn't stop there. The blame game then moves into action. It gives way to an action. Uh, suffice to say this, nobody does something that's wrong just out of the blue. At some point in time, there was a lie disposited in their mind, and there was an attitude that was ripe to believe the lie. All of those things gave way to it. Look at verse 6 in Genesis chapter 3. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom... She took action, right? She took some and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. They took action over the lie that had been placed in their minds and the attitude that had been set by bringing doubt or mocking. But, you know, when I read this story in Genesis, I don't know how you felt over the years. you got to ask yourself, like, I'm going to work fruit into every message because it's so good. You've got to ask yourself, what was wrong with eating from that tree, right? I mean, what's the big deal? They ate fruit from a tree. And furthermore, why did God even put it in the garden? You ever feel that? If you didn't want them to eat it, put it on the top shelf so they can't get to it. Right? If you didn't want it there, don't leave it laying around, right? What's the big deal with this forbidden tree? Why is there a prohibition against this? And it's the same reason why there may be a prohibition against anything. Whether it's some command or law we don't understand. 
God says, you can do anything. It's paradise. Just don't eat from that tree. What was so bad about that tree? Well, ask yourself this. What if God had told Adam and Eve exactly what would happen if they ate from that tree? I mean, they're strolling in the garden one day, come up to the tree, it looks good. Say, God, what about this tree? No, don't, don't eat from that tree. If you eat from that tree, suffering, pain, and death will enter the human experience for the rest of human history. What would you do? You back away and say, plenty of other trees to have. Why? Because immediately, we as humans do a cost-benefit analysis. Is this good? No. <laughs> this doesn't benefit me. This could hurt me, so I'm not going to do it. We do a cost-benefit analysis. It's just not worth it. But here's the thing, friends. Every time we do that, that's not obedience. Obedience is not like one of my kids when they're growing up doing a cost-benefit analysis when I ask them to do something, whether they're going to do it. Obedience is recognizing you're God. I'm your creation. You ask this of me. I'm going to do it. Cost-benefit analysis is self-interest. It keeps you in the driving seat. You're the one still controlling this. When God said, don't eat from the tree, he was saying, this is your chance. Treat me like God or treat this world in your life like it belongs to you. You can do one or the other. God says, obey my rules, not because of a cost-benefit analysis, but because I am God. I'm God. Now, here's where it comes to the nitty-gritty. You ready for the nitty-gritty? This is it. Like, I love Torontonians because I love the way we think. Uh, it's a very complex city that we live in. We have multicultural, multi-generationals. This church is a great reflection of the city of Toronto. But Torontonians, generally speaking, they don't mind obeying the will of God if it makes sense to them. Right? I mean, take yourselves out of that scenario and just say with your parents growing up. You don't mind obeying when it makes sense to you, right? So, thou shall not murder. Guess it's not a good thing. Makes sense. Guess I won't murder. Thou shall not commit adultery. Yeah, kind of gets complex. <laughs> You're breaking your word, all kinds of stuff. That's not a good thing. All of a sudden, when it makes sense to us, we have no problem with that. But if we feel it's not a very progressive command, it's not a very realistic command, or it doesn't meet my needs, our attitude shifts. First, we begin to push back from whatever God commanded. And we begin to say, well, it's 2018. 2018. And our attitude shifts a little bit. Then we'll buy the lie. And eventually, we will inevitably act on it. We are acting independent of God in those moments. This is why it's important. There's, there's a man in the 1890s. His name was William Borden. I don't expect any of you to know him, but he was a very, came from a very wealthy family. They owned dairies all over the Midwest of the U.S. He's from Chicago, Illinois. What, William Borden went to Yale in the 1890s, and when he went to Yale, he encountered God, and it was life transforming. He just changed. In fact, he felt God saying, I want you to spend your life as a missionary. Now, in that context in the 1890s, this is an aristocrat family. You don't do those things. 
We're respectable. That's other people do those things. We don't do those things. And so he resisted his family, insisting that he didn't become a missionary. And he, after he graduated from Yale, he gave his entire inheritance away, everything. It was $1 million in that day. That's $26 million today. He gave it away. Gave it away to missions organizations. Gave it away that many people would know Jesus. So in relative poverty, he moved to Egypt in Cairo to learn Arabic so he could share Jesus with people of Arabic backgrounds. And while he was in Cairo, this is fascinating. Within weeks, he, can, he contracted spinal meningitis. And within a few weeks, he died. Now, track with me. They found him in his room. And he had scribbled on a piece of paper next to his bed, just an ordinary piece of paper. He scribbled these words. No reserve, holding nothing back. No retreat, not going back, and no regrets. Can you say that with me? No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Now, to be honest with you, I read that story and I think, I'm not sure I'd be writing that down. I'd be writing, why? Why, God, am I dying? I gave you my money, I gave you my obedience, I gave you my character, I, I put you before my family, why would I die? What about all the promise? How can my life possibly dying be good? But then it says, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Why did he say that? You know, I, I get nervous sometimes because I know as a pastor the responsibility I have spiritually to represent what God's word says. And please hear me. There's a reason why William Borden could say that. Because he did not obey God for results, what he get out of it. He was not obeying God because his reputation would flourish. He was not obeying God even to make a great impact in life. He was obeying God because he was God and William Borden was not. You see, it, not because it made sense to William Borden, not because he understood it, but because it was God. Because God was God and he wasn't. William Borden disbelieved the lie that you can't trust God. And he refused the action of putting himself in the place of God. Friends, I know, I know what you're thinking, though. You're going, yeah, but Jonathan, he died. <laughs> like, great story, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets, but the man died. No, 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 no. Don't buy the lie. He is flourishing with his creator today. Everyone who's a follower of Jesus, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Why are you holding so tightly to what you have now? Don't buy the lie. If you're buying the lie, go back and check the attitudinal atmosphere that you are feeding yourself on through social media or the culture of this world. William Borden understood this that the blame game starts with an attitude. And then there's a lie that gets deposited in the soil of an attitude that's been shifted or changed. And then that inevitably leads us to actions. But here's the good news. The blame game, this is not the good news, but you need to know where this ends, ends as a trap. It's very interesting. When we blame others, when we blame God, when we blame people for our actions in life, we actually find ourselves trapped in life. Genesis 3, verses 8 to 13 is human history in a nutshell. Just in a nutshell. 
Here's, here's some of what it says. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they, can you say it with me? Hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Where are you? Friends, ever since the fall of humanity, we've become hiders. We hide. We hide from God. We hide from people. We become hiders. We are now hiders in this life. And the reason is we can't bear. Uh, you know, why do we shift responsibility? Because we can't bear to bear it. It's hard to hear truth when people speak to it because it wounds us so deeply. It's hard when people give us real feedback. We don't want to own it. I mean, I remember a couple of moments with my wife as we were newly married and she gave me some feedback. You know, I, I did what every man does with feedback. I just said, oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, I get that. No, no, I realized that I had more feedback to give her then. If you get that feedback, I've got bigger feedback. And, you know, you start this moment where you can't own any of your junk. Can't own any of it. So what do you do is you start hiding it. You hide it all the time. You hide it from others. That's why we do spin. That's why we're dishonest with people. That's why we pose. We're hiding it from others. We hide it from ourselves. We can't bear to be alone and with ourselves because all of that stuff comes to the surface. And we, hide, we try to hide it from God. Actually, we try to hide from God. Because in his presence, it can get a little uncomfortable. Not only did we become hiders, though, we became blamers. This is my favorite part of the story is what happens between Adam and Eve when they get caught, right? So the story goes like this. The man says, again, the woman, you put here. Who is he blaming there? He's blaming God, yeah. He's blaming God here. The woman you put here with me, she, who is he blaming there? He's blaming Eve, right? He's quick to throw her under the bus. I mean, he's so quick here. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I, and I feel like he probably said it this way. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and, and I ate it. I feel like all that emphasis was on the front part. Oh, the woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and, and I ate it. That's what I feel like it when it went down. And then God turns to Eve and says, what did you do? And she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. The serpent deceived me when I ate it. Earlier in the passage, it's very interesting when it says in Genesis, uh, because we have this narrative or this idea in our mind of how this all went down. This maybe Eve was out for a stroll one day. Serpent deceives her. Poor Eve. And Eve eats it. And then she takes it back to Adam Maybe he cooks it in a dish. He doesn't know what he's eating, maybe even. And he eats it, and all of a sudden, he's implicated. But in Genesis, it didn't go down at all like that. It says that Adam was right there with her. So the serpent and Eve are talking, and what's Adam doing? Well, yeah, sure, I'll try. Yeah, That's how it goes. He's right there. He's complicit with it. He's right in with it. He didn't stop it. He wasn't that strong. No, 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 no. He's right in there with her. See, we became blamers. And here's the thing, friends. The interesting thing about everything that Adam and Eve says, we go back to the other verse, is they're all true. 
Who gave Adam the woman? God. God. Who gave him the fruit? Eve did, right? Who deceived Eve? The serpent did. They're telling 100% truth. 100% factual, that's how it went down. And they thought because there's contributing factors, they weren't responsible. And this is the interesting thing with God, and we miss it often. God holds us responsible for our responses. See, I can shift the blame to someone. I can shift the blame to something else. And when I do, I'm refusing personal responsibility. And that was never right in God's eyes with Adam and Eve, and it isn't with us. God held them responsible. Satan tricked her, but he couldn't make her eat it. Eve gave it to Adam, but she couldn't make him choose it. The serpent, sure, but the serpent couldn't make her eat it. She cannot blame Satan for action. He, Adam cannot blame Eve for his actions. We have free will. We have the opportunity to choose, which means that you and I have the right to choose. We have a freedom of choices. I can't blame other people for my choices. Nobody can make me make the choices that I make. Oh, there were contributing factors. I get it. There are tons of contributing factors that help me understand why I make some stupid choices. It helps me understand why other people make some stupid choices in life. I get the contributing factors here, but nobody can make the choices that I make in life for me. See, when we pray, play, and this is, this is, there's good news, friends. There's good news here. When we play the blame game, we're trapped. I remember years ago sitting in this very church and Pastor Keith Smith, uh, our teaching pastor and lead pastor at the time said this. He made a statement and it bothered me. I didn't like it. He said, nobody can make you angry. I thought, lots of people make me angry. <laughs> but nobody can make you choose anger as a response to their behavior. You choose it. One of them leaves you powerless. If someone can make you angry, you're powerless. People can, they're able to do whatever they want in your life. If you choose anger, you're in control. You have the choice, the ability to choose. Here's the cool thing. When you own your blame, then you can shift the blame. Not onto somebody, not onto something, but onto Jesus. You've got to own it before you shift it. Here's what it says in 1 John 1 verse 9. It says this. If we confess, can you say it with me? Our sins. I like to confess Shelley's sins. I mean, there are so many of them, eh, babe? There's so many to confess. And I'm more aware of hers than I am mine. Isn't it true, and we know it, when Jesus says, take the, take the plank out of your own eye before you help your brother with the speck in his? But come on, is it not easier to see the plank in theirs? Is it not easier to see the sins of others? I mean, here's the thing. I grew up in church, so I, I, have, I have to be very careful. I can be judgmental. I can attitudinally, I may not be out murdering people, so I think I'm all that in a cup of tea, but my attitude sucks. 
I got these thoughts going through my mind that would embarrass me if other people knew it. All of the toxicity that exists in my life and heart, it's ugly. It's ugly. But if I confess Jonathan's sin, if I own my junk, if I own the blame for what I've done, my choices and actions in life, if I do it, here's what happened. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, our blame, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, friends, do the math. If you don't own it, you don't get it forgiven. If you won't own the blame, God can't help you with it. Here's the difficulty. People will come, and they want to experience that life that maybe doesn't have that residue of guilt in it, but they don't want to own the responsibility of it. Friends, the beautiful thing is, once you own it, you can shift it. You can shift it off your plate and onto Jesus' record. Off your record and onto Jesus' record. Because that's what he came to do. So I want to do something neat today. I want to I leave it. Uh, let me ask you a question. How many would like to leave here blameless? No, seriously, how many would just, like, I'd like to leave here completely blameless. Completely blameless. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't have to deal with the responsibilities we've done. We've made choices. We may have consequences that come out of it. But how many would like to go and not have a guilty conscience at all, and you leave here blameless? Like, I feel like that's the best Father's Day gift ever. In a moment, you're going to get a cold dad's root beer at the door. And listen, listen, guys, I want you to know it's hot out there, and it's refreshing. And it's been cooled. It's chilled just for you. As good as that gift is, shifting blame, not on anybody, not onto something, not on my circumstances, shifting blame onto Jesus who can bear it. Man, leaving with a guilt-free conscience. I like that. I'm going to invite you to stand right across this room. Here's what we're going to do. In a moment, our worship band's going to sing that song, He is One. And when they do... I would like you, if you've maybe attitudinally been shifting away from God, why not pause and sing that song, clap that song, worship, and maybe a little bit of passion rising up in you. Why? Because you're allowing your attitude to shift back. Hey, I want to say it's cool to be passionate. It is cool to be all in. It's cool to be passionate about God, the Father who created you. Jesus, the Son, who's given you a way back to the Father. His Spirit that is in this place. It is cool to belong to a body of believers like this. To call this my church community? Man, that's awesome. So why don't we shift some blame and then celebrate, allowing our attitude to, sh to shift back to places of passion so we won't buy the lie and we won't act on the lie. We can end the blame game today. Here's how we do it. These are just words. This is an ancient prayer of the church. It's been read for centuries. And as we read it, they're either words and they mean nothing. They'll do nothing for you. Just take a minute. Own your junk. Holy Spirit, just let us see. Let us see the ugliness sometimes that's in our hearts. The words we say that hurt, that offend, that tear down. The things we think that change the atmosphere and the tone of our relationship with God and others. And then our deeds 
the actions, the things that we do that hurt and break us. You got that all in mind now? Because you're about to leave it behind. You're about to leave it in the seat right where you're at. And when you leave this place, none of that has to go with you. In faith, let's say this out loud together. You ready? Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you through our own fault in thought and word and deed and in what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us of all our offenses and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. Father, we thank you for being an amazing dad. That God, when we had chosen our own way, when that lie got lodged in our hearts, God, you didn't leave us in that place of brokenness, but you have pursued us from that day to this day. And how great a father are you? You never gave up on us. Even when we have denied you, you will never deny us. And you are amazing. And we affirm with our mouths and with our hearts today, God, that we do trust you. We love you and we trust in the goodness of God. You want nothing but good things for your kids. And here's the difference between us and an earthly father. And you can deliver. You can deliver. So Jesus, thank you for being willing to leave heaven, to come to earth, to provide a way that we can be forgiven and back in relationship with the Father. We love you. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen, amen. Make sure you don't miss a message by subscribing to this podcast. All creative content and production for this podcast is provided by the One Church Creative Team.